you're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Rosanna M. White is a best-selling, Christie Award-winning author who has long claimed that words are the air she breathes. When not writing fiction, she's homeschooling her two kids, editing, designing book covers, and pretending to... and pretending her house will clean itself. Rosanna M. White, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you so much for having me. It's always fun to talk to you guys. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you back on, talk about your new book. But to start us off, I ran across an interesting bookish conundrum on Facebook the other day, and I had fun reading people's answers. So I wanted to ask you, would you rather never be able to finish reading a series or never be able to reread a favorite novel? I I did give this one a moment's thought, but... I very rarely have time to reread any favorites these days, so I, I would let that one go. <laughs> let me finish my series, and I'll, I'll give up the reread. Assuming the Bible doesn't count, which I'm assuming on these Yes, questions. yes, of course. Yeah, this is just yeah. fiction. You know. Yeah, fiction. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. I was thinking about it, and I am so much of a rereader. Like, I have so many books that I really want to read, but I am so much going for my comfort reads that I was like, I'll I'll let myself never be able to finish just reading a series. But what I'll probably end up doing is reading like the last books in the series and skipping the first one or one of the middle ones because I, I got to have the ending, you know? <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. But yeah, I figured that was, that's just a fun one because as readers, you know, we want it all. We really do. Oh, we totally do. I have I have a list of books I want to reread. And like, I keep promising myself, oh, you can do this one. And then I never get to it. It's like, oh, the oh, to be read no. pile is like taller than I am. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. And your to be reread pile just, mm-hmm. just gets ignored. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so readers debate all the time about the benefits of not reading a book that doesn't capture your interest. Have you ever read a book or author you disliked at first but grew to enjoy? Of course. I mean, I dare say we all have. I, I couldn't think of like a contemporary author this has happened for. I'm sure it has. There's, you know, I love so many and there's no way that I was immediately gripped by them all. Um, but I, what I actually went back to was the classics. Because I remember, you know, when I first read some books in high school or college, you know, the whole, ugh, really, this one? <laughs> but then mm-hmm. I loved them. And, you know, even, you know, a good example is Shakespeare, who was so difficult <laughs> the first times I had to read anything. Um, but then I just ended up, like, devouring his plays in college and writing essays on them and just kind of trying to pluck at his genius a little. And, you know, it, it just turned into something very inspiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like growing into liking and loving a certain type of fiction. Yeah. I know. Um, Sometimes I'll go back and read something that I just like adored when I was like, oh, 15, 16. And I'm like, oh, why did I like that so much? Or a TV (laughs) show or something. I'm like, sit down and watch it with my kids. And we started. And I'm like, oh, this is so annoying. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, we just kind of, we change as we grow. I think that's really cool that you went back to Shakespeare because yes, he's the one that everyone reads in middle school. And I, I'm not really sure why they start exposing us in middle school because <laughs> we just, we're too young to appreciate it. You know? 
Yeah, I, I think ninth grade was my first Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, it was like, mm. really? <laughs> I'm not ready for this. No, no. But then as you get older, you read it and you're like his depth of character oh, development yeah. and stuff. And it's Brilliant. it's really cool. So I, I love that it was a classic for you that was one that you did not take to instantly, but but came to love. Yeah. For sure. Now, which of your books, you have written quite a few novels by now, (laughs) which of them would you say cost you the most emotionally to write and why? Oh, I had to debate this question for a long time because there are so many that, you know, were difficult in places and the characters, I just felt like I was wrestling them the whole time or something. Um, But I think in terms of just the emotional cost, it was not because of the book. It was To Treasure an Heiress, which was my lightest, funniest, most comedic book, actually. But life happened in the middle of it. I wrote half the book on a retreat with my best friend, and I came home, and a week later, my son was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And this involved a trip to the emergency room and then a um, helicopter ride to Pittsburgh for him. And he was in PICU and then, you know, in the hospital for five days. And the next two months of my life were spent just learning how to keep my son alive and dealing with all of the insurance and the bills and the medical stuff. And it was I didn't even open the document up for two to three months. And then it was due (laughs) real soon, you know. So I had to break it back out and get myself back in that headspace. And it was just hard. It was hard to transition from, from, you know, this very real life thing to this story that was full of laughter and jokes. And yet when I did it, it was so healing to to be in a world where, yeah, things went wrong, but you know what? There was laughter and there was hope and there was joy and there was faith and there was love. And I realized then that God had put those stories on my heart for that particular season. Um, Because what I didn't realize when I started the series was it had a character who, who died before the series even started from a chronic illness. And the family that, you know, had to live with that all their lives. And that was this family that I was writing about, you know, five years after their brother's death. And just, um, it was just kind of amazing how, how God worked out that timing for me, that I could see the hope that I had already written in when I was in the midst of needing it most. That would be extremely difficult. But I love how God does take our writing and that sort of writing journey and interweave it with so many things in our lives, like motherhood and our walk with him and and different things. So that's just wonderful that he worked that out. But yeah, that would be challenging. Sometimes it's really hard, you know, when you're going through something in your own life that's heavy to you know, even read something that's lighthearted. Like you say, it can be healing, but it can feel strange at at the very least when you pick it up and you start reading it because it's so opposite from what you're going through right then. Right. A disconnect. Exactly. Mm. Now, is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something that God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot lately about kind of just the length of redemption and promises and covenants and how impatient we are, but how long a view God takes. So it was something that I, you know, jotted down a note about, you know, a year ago to write write something about. And I just kind of let it simmer, which is kind of ironic when you're talking about how long things take to happen sometimes. But it really kind of played out in in the book we're going to be talking about, Yesterday's Tides, um, where we see that it takes, you know, sometimes 
months for healings to happen. It takes sometimes generations for promises to be fulfilled. And we see this in the Bible and we, you know, shake our head at the Israelites for being so short-sighted and forgetful. They forget what God had done for them, but it was generations ago. And and then I think, you know, how how patient are we really when we're waiting for something? And um yeah, <laughs> I think we're always, you know, we're always waiting for something. And I know my family is always waiting for something. And it's hard to remember sometimes, but so important to remember that God looks so much farther ahead than we do. And he knows those exact times when we need something. So I just, you know, love to give the encouragement through my stories, especially of you know, you don't know how things are going to play out, but God does. And he's got it perfectly planned so that someday, you know, your story can be told in a way that moves someone else and changes someone else's life. And that's just the beauty of serving an eternal God. That is so good because, yeah, like you say, it's so easy for us to be short-sighted and like we pick on the Israelites, but really, you know, (laughs) we're the same way because we only have, you know, 70, 80 years or so on this life and we get so impatient, but God's plan is so much bigger and better. Oh, Mm -hmm. that's good stuff there. (laughs) Well, let's dive in to talking about your latest release, Yesterday's Tides. Oh, I just made a nice pun there, didn't I? In 1942, Evie Farrow is used to life on Ocracoke Island where every day is the same until the German U-boats haunting their waters begin to wreak havoc. And when Special Agent Sterling Bertrand is washed ashore at Evie's Inn, her life is turned upside down. While Sterling's injuries keep him in-mound for weeks, making him even more anxious about the man he's tracking, he becomes increasingly intrigued by Evie, who seems to be hiding secrets of her own. Decades earlier, in 1914, Englishman Remington Colbreth arrives at the Ocracoke Inn for the summer. But he doesn't count on falling in love with Louisa Adair the innkeeper's daughter. When war breaks out in Europe and their relationship is put in jeopardy, will their love survive? As Evie and Sterling work to track down an elusive German agent, they unravel mysteries that go back a generation. The ripples from the Great War are still rocking their lives, and it seems yesterday's tides may sweep them all into danger again today. So we have both world wars in the same novel, plus two romances and intertwined intrigue. This has quite the premise. What inspired you to write a novel with timelines in both world wars? I will I will just call it a stroke of brilliance or or a god thing. I don't know. So I had long had the idea for the first timeline, Louisa and Rem. I had had their story. Actually, I first wrote it as a contemporary when I graduated from college. So a long time, let's say. We had that in my in my heart for a long time. But I got the idea to turn them into a historical years ago at the suggestion of my brilliant critique partner. Um, and so I actually planted Rem in my previous series in the Code Breakers. He was there in room 40. So I was committed. <laughs> he was going to he was going to have a story set during World War One. And I knew I wanted a big part of it to take place in the Outer Banks on Ocracoke. Uh, and one year we vacation down in the Outer Banks every year. So one year I was, you know, walking along, taking a walk on the beach. And I thought, man, it is just so annoying that all the interesting history down here happened in the Second World War instead of the First, because that's not my war. That's not what I write about. I can't set it then. And then I went, oh, or can I? I can do a time slip. I can tell both stories. 
stories because I had Evie's story in my head too. Um, so I thought, oh, that's that's just perfect, a way to combine the two stories. And I was a little intimidated because in my head, they were two full books. So I'm like, how do I put these together into one book? But I actually, I love, I love how it turned out. So I'm very glad for that stroke of beach-inspired genius that was totally God saying, hey, you can do it. You can do it. I love that so much. And that is so funny about, yeah, this is not my war, but. <laughs> but it could, could be. It could be. Yes. Yes. Oh, and it is interesting when you stop and think about it. The wars were, like you say, a generation apart, but mm-hmm. that meant that people who had seen the first world war lived through it were still alive when it came around again the second time, yeah. which, yeah. you know, played into how long it took for the U.S. to get involved because they're like, no, we're not doing that again and (laughs) things like that. So yeah, they seem, you know, in our heads, very separate. But at the time, no, they were very intertwined. Oh, so intertwined. All the people who fought in World War I were the leaders in World War II. So it was, mm. it was direct consequence of the First World War, which I learned through the books that I wrote that took place in the Great War. Everything I learned about it, I was like, oh, I thought that was just in World War II. But no, it was all planted. Like all the seeds were planted in World War I. And they just kind of bloomed again in a really horrible way a a generation later. But yeah, so I was like, oh, yay, I can explore that and kind of play with it. And it was just so fun. Yes, it's always cool to, yeah, exactly. See how the seeds of history get planted and and where where things actually come from. Yeah. Now, Yesterday's Tides addresses themes such as giving up and reclaiming your dreams. Can you tell us a little bit more about how this idea comes into play in the lives of your two female protagonists, Louisa and Evie? Yeah, so Louisa was the, the first of the characters in my in my head who had to deal with this. She grew up in a, a tiny little village on this tiny little island, and she loved it, but she also had bigger dreams. She wanted to go to school. She wanted to become a teacher. She did hope to someday come back to the island, but she wanted her time away first, which I think is something like every <laughs> teenager considers at some point, right? Like, mm-hmm. do I spread my wings? Do I leave? But she was afraid to leave her family. She was afraid they wouldn't be able to survive without her because it was just, you know, her mom and her grandma. And how can they run the inn without her being there to help? But of course, they want her to chase her dreams. So she's, you know, she's ready to be bold and daring. And then she falls in love. <laughs> and so, you know, this is this is something I think women all through history have have had to face and still do that. Well, okay how do I juggle my dreams now? Do I do I chase the dream of family, like starting my own family? Do I chase the dream of a career? You know, which one is is worth giving up? And do I have to give them up? And, you know, is there a way to have both? And so uh, yeah, I'm not going to give away exactly how she resolves this, of course, um, but it's just something that I think so many people can relate to. Because even if we try to grab hold of everything, I think we always feel like we're compromising one or the other or everything. Um, and so, you know, that just, it can, it can weigh so heavily on us. Um, and Evie's situation is a little different. She made a choice to stay on Ocracoke, even though she could have had anything. She could have lived in Europe. She could have traveled. She could have done whatever she wanted to do, but she opted for the quiet life. And it's not that she regrets it, but it's left her alone. Um, so she's she's here in the opening of the book thinking every day is the same. And that's great, right? Like false cheer in her voice. And she loves it and kind of feels 
like she's a prisoner to it. So she has to basically get to the point where she can consider whether she dares to dream again, whether she can stretch her wings now after she decided to stay here. Oh, those are kind of heavy topics too, like giving up or reclaiming one's dreams. And I think that's definitely something that's addressed throughout history. Not to say that men don't also have to give up dreams and and Mm -hmm. such, but in kind of a different way, um, like we see with Evie. Um, And once you've done that, you know, and I know momentarily it might seem like the best choice, but then, you know, years go by and things kind of change and you kind of have to live with that and like learn how to be at peace or have something change. But I'm glad that you're exploring that in the novel and that we get to see that. So who is your favorite secondary character in this story and why? I, ha- I have quite a few, <laughs> but I think oh. I'm going to go with my, my grandmother characters. I have two of them. Um, we have Gran and Elsie, um, and I love them both. They are, they're just darlings. Um, Elsie is actually deaf. I, she, she's from one of my previous series. She was a little girl in Circle of Spies from the Culper Ring series. She was four years old in the Civil War. Um, and so then we see her in these, these other, both wars actually, as a grown up. And so when I decided to put her in here, I was like, oh man, <laughs> that means I need to like figure out how to write American Sign Language into my novel. And it turned out wonderful because I have a friend who helped me. Um, But I loved putting her in there because she sees the world so differently because she just sees the world. She doesn't hear the world, but she sees so much. So I loved getting to explore that. And then um, my other grandmother character, Gran, who's only in the the World War One line, she she's just she comes with so much insight. She was from the pre-Civil War South. She was actually born a slave. And so then, you know, she kind of went through that whole tumult in the years to follow and made some choices that affected everyone around and ended up, you know, moving to Ocracoke years later. But she brings something to this book that we wouldn't have had without her. She comes from a totally different background, a totally different culture than anyone else around her. She was from Louisiana, so she was Catholic and moved to this little tiny village that has a Methodist church, the end <laughs> sort of thing. Um, so, you know, she she kind of um, modeled what what you do for those you love, how much you'll give up for those you love. And she will, she has this insight and will tell anybody, <laughs> tell them how it is. Um, but she's also an innkeeper with, with the other ladies in the family. So she's also really good at seeing what people need and meeting that need. So it was just so much fun to explore these two characters and how they're like and how they're different and um, how they just really add richness into the lives of the people around them. That does sound exciting. And I love that they're both grandmothers. Like, that's so cool that you were able to take character from another series and just just plant her in there. And I love it when authors do that. Um, It's just so unique to kind of tie those together. And yeah, who doesn't love like a the grandma that characters because everyone hopefully kind of has a grandma or someone in their life that's like a grandma whether you have like the grumpy grandma or the sweet grandma <laughs> like who doesn't love their grandmothers exactly and I actually this this book 
um, combines all my previous series. I I drew in at least one character from each series <laughs> into this book. So it is full of Easter eggs. So if you've read the other books, you will love finding them. And if you haven't, or it's been too long, you won't even notice that you're missing anything. But I had a, I had way too much fun doing that. Oh, I love it. I love it. That's so much fun to me when a character from a series pops up again. So I love that you were able to bring in so many. That's super fun. Yes. Yes, it was. Well, this novel, I believe, is a standalone. So what are you working on next? Next up is a series called The Imposters. It will begin in August with A Beautiful Disguise, book number one. And the premise is, okay, it's just so much fun. We've got Edwardian Circus. We've got the whole upstairs, downstairs, aristocrats thing. Um, We've got a little bit of spy history and espionage. And of course, we have a mystery that is being solved and romance. Gotta have romance. Um, But the the premise is actually that we have an aristocratic brother and sister. He's, He's an earl who are on the brink of bankruptcy because their father wasted all the family money on entertainments. So he always had circus troops coming through and acrobats and aerialists and theater groups and all these wonderful things that kept his children highly entertained when they were young, but it used up all their money. Um, So they have to figure out how to support themselves and the family of retired circus performers who now live at their house. (laughs) So um, they decide to open a private investigative firm, basically. They cater to the elite, but they're also spying on the elite, which they can do because nobody knows they're doing it. So use all of their acrobatic tricks that they've learned and their trapeze work and their high wire skills and their theater skills uh, to spy on all their neighbors and friends. And it is just so much fun. Oh, that sounds like a riot. I mean, I'm sure that they are investigating, you know, some things that may not be so important, but they're probably going to run into some pretty serious things. But the way they're going about it just sounds like such a riot. I, I love this. I'm getting... I'm getting circus vibes. I don't know if oh, yeah. you've read that by oh, yeah. Alistair McLean, which of course that one is like really serious, but the way <laughs> they've got all their skills, uh, this is going to be fun. Yep. It, it's oh, it's so much fun. Yeah. Uh, Lady Marigold is the first heroine and she likes to kind of blend in in society in a very strange way. She wears the most outrageous hokutor imaginable so that people only notice what she's wearing and don't pay any attention to her, which means she can, you know, do what she wants. And more importantly, her best friend can pose as her at events and no one even notices because it's just, oh, there's Lady Marigold's hat. Lady Marigold must be under it, right? Um, so this is how she can sneak around. And it's just so much fun because she has this this beautiful disguise, this wonderful mask that helps her in her um, investigative work. Oh, that's awesome. This is going to be a fun story, too. Uh, not to distract from yesterday's tides, of course, but the next one is also going to be good. Yep. And for our listeners, Rosanna is offering a copy of Yesterday's Tide. To enter to win the giveaway, just go to our website, historicalbookroom.com, and you can click on the giveaways tab. I'll also have the link for that giveaway in the show notes for this episode. And Rosanna, how can our listeners connect with you? 
I always direct everybody first and foremost to my website because that has absolutely everything on it, including a sign up for my newsletter, which I do send out once a week. And it has a roundup of everything I'm doing. So it's got my blog posts, any podcasts that went live that week, any giveaways going on. Um, Subscribers get cover reveals first and some other things first and special giveaways now and then. So I do encourage everyone to sign up for the newsletter. It's on the homepage. There's a pop-up. There's a special page. You you cannot miss. (laughs) newsletter signups. So definitely check that out. And I'm on all the big social media platforms. You can find me at Rosanna M. White on them all. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It's been fun chatting with you. It's always so much fun. Thanks for having me, guys. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.